Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Are you guys still with me? You awake? Um, it's good to see some new faces this morning, um, some faces I see intermittently, and I just want to tell you, I have a chance every now and then to travel and visit different churches, and when I get there, um, everybody doesn't always know right away I'm the speaker, and so I get to experience what it's like to be new in a place. Stinks. <laughs> I don't like being the new guy anywhere. It's so uncomfortable. And uh, sometimes the, the little advantage I have is people go, oh, he's the speaker. Oh, you've got to act nice to him. Everyone shows attention to me after they figure it out. But before then... Sometimes it feels kind of cold. It feels a little uncomfortable. You know what I mean? So I want to encourage you and make this a weekly practice. If you walk past someone whose face you don't recognize, at least share a smile, pause and introduce yourself, get a first name, and welcome them to the church you call home. So I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Um, <clears throat> if you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as a lead pastor here, and we've been working our way through a series on the book of James. And James is a letter written by the younger brother of Jesus to the scattered church that was undergoing all kinds of serious societal pressures. And the church from within was threatening to collapse because people were losing their way. And so James is, is, is writing this letter to bring the church back to where they need to be. The last time we were together here, uh, I preached a kind of heavy message not kind of, it was pretty heavy. Um, it was about the topic of spiritual adultery. And we defined adultery as giving yourself away to another when you legitimately belong to someone else. That's what adultery is. It's when you truly do belong to someone, but you give yourself away to someone else. And whether that happens in human relationships or with God, it is painful and it's tragic whenever it happens. And so we established last time that that's something that's very common in the Christian experience. You see, we're, we were made to worship and to love, but God sometimes feels far away, invisible to us. And as a result, it's not hard to imagine that in the same way people in marriage drift apart, we will drift apart and sometimes stray or deliberately walk into spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness towards God. Some people get there by the way of pain or disappointment. Something really tragic happens and they don't know where God was in the midst of all that. And out of the anger and disappointment, they blame God for that and they walk away from him. Others get there because they believe a lie and are seduced towards something that fails to deliver what it promised, but it sounded so good at the time. Others just drift apart because they stop paying attention to the relationship. Any relationship that's neglected will start to fade. If you just leave it alone, it will not age like fine wine or cheese. It will rot like vegetables left on the kitchen counter, won't they? And that's what happens to a relationship when you neglect it. So because those kinds of things are so common in any relationship, it stands to reason that most of us over the course of our life following Jesus We'll stray at some point. We'll be tempted to give ourselves away to someone or something else. 
when we do that, it really breaks the heart of God. And it really wreaks havoc on our own hearts. And last time we learned that the person caught in adultery has one of two responses available to them. This isn't marital adultery, it's in spiritual adultery. When you realize where you've gone, how far you've drifted from the one you belong to, you have two options to respond. One is the way of pride where you say, you know what, it's not my fault. It's their fault. They did this to me. They made me do it. It's to cast blame, to shift the responsibility to everybody else but yourself, to say, who in my shoes wouldn't have done what I did? And you could take the road of pride, or you could take the road of humility. And you could say, you know what? I own responsibility for what I did. I had no excuse. Yes, I was under pressure. But what I did, I did by my own choosing. And I betrayed somebody that I belonged to. That's the truth of it. No matter what else I want to say about it, that's the truth, and I accept responsibility. That's the road of humility. And we ended last time with James quoting Proverbs 3.34, and here's what that old, old wise saying says. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And so this morning, we want to look at verses 7 through 10 in the fourth chapter of James. And I want to spell, what does it look like when you realize you've been unfaithful towards God, drifted far away from him, and your heart is pierced and you want to come back to him, return to God? What does that process look like? What does it mean to come home to God after you've lived a long time far away from him? Here's the text. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Like I said last time, we ended with James quoting Psalm, uh, Proverbs 3.34. And in these words are a very clear and gentle invitation from God to anybody who's wandered far from him. His message is not, oh, you're going to get it. If I were God, I think that's the kind of stuff I'd say. If you've wandered far from me, <laughs> you, you're going to die later. I'll teach you. I would squash people like bugs if they betrayed me because... And that's, thank God, I'm not him. Thank God. The message from our, our Father in heaven is, wanderer, come home. And, you know, I've tried all week to imagine how I would feel if my wife was unfaithful to me. Where would my heart be in that moment towards her? Would it really be, please come back to me? I think at one point it would be, and as she started coming back, I'm like, get out of here. I'm so mad at you. I think my heart would be so conflicted because it's, it's such a sting to be betrayed. And yet I'm amazed that consistently throughout Scripture, the message of our Heavenly Father is always this. I still have the knife sticking out of my back, but I want you to come home. So what does it mean? To return to God. Really what we're talking about is the process of repentance. But I think the word repentance is one of those words that we probably don't understand as deeply 
as we might think. Because repentance is more than feeling really awful about what you did. Repentance is more than making a sincere apology for what you've done. Repentance is a complete reorientation of a relationship that has been messed up by our choices. It's rebuilding something that is so fragile it takes decades to build and only one moment to shatter. And putting that back together is not a trivial process. And so we want to talk about what it really means to return to someone after you've been unfaithful. And you can apply this later in a marital relationship if, heaven forbids, something like that should happen in your life. But quite often, we find ourselves in this place with God. And so we'll look at these verses and get a roadmap for what real biblical repentance is all about. And the first step of repentance is to submit ourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God, James says very clearly. And I find it surprising that that's the first thing he says about repentance. I thought maybe say sorry. I thought maybe grieve, mourn, wail. Those would be the first things in repentance. But the first thing he says is get this right. The first step of repentance is to submit yourself to God. Because the root of all unfaithfulness is forgetting who that person is to us. The root of all unfaithfulness is that one day it was very clear to me who you were, but over time, I just kind of forgot or I chose not to remember who you're supposed to be to me. I made you someone or something other than what I know you are. And as I reshifted the position relative to us, as I put you in a different category, in a different position, our relationship disappeared. At the root of all spiritual wandering is the forgetfulness about who this God is to us. And that is so foundational to all spiritual adultery that the first thing James says is, look, the thing you have to do first is reorient yourself with God in the right position. If we recognize who God really is, the only proper place for us to be is under him. Do you understand that? There is no other option. If we really see God for who he is, there really isn't another alternative of me sitting next to God as his equal or over God as the one demanding the terms of engagement. When I know who God is, it is clear that the only right posture for for me and for you is to be under him. See, this word submit comes out of the military context. It's a word, if you literally translate it, would say to arrange under something. The visual picture you should have is of a very capable warrior who could clearly take out his general in a fight. If you've ever seen a soldier and a general, soldier's going to win every time, okay? The general might have lots of street smarts, lots of military strategy, but he can't fight to save his life. And the soldier looks at a man he could kill with his pinky and goes, I submit to you. My sword is yours, my liege, you know, things like that. I am yours at your disposal, though I could kill you. I submit myself to your authority. Now, we are not like that with God. God could crush us. But what we're saying to God is, I place myself under your authority. Because the reason all the trouble started was I forgot that's where I belonged. I started thinking, maybe you owe me answers. Maybe you owe me something, God. I think that happens a lot to us because we compare our lives to the lives of others. And suddenly, a little voice creeps in our head that says things like, I'll treat you like God when you start acting like God. Do you ever, ever, do you ever feel that or say that 
you don't have to raise your hand. That's kind of embarrassing. But, you know, raise your inside hand. Do you ever feel that in your heart? Like you look at everybody else. Their lives, it looks like they're just running through the fields of flowers just every day. So carefree and money just falls from the sky and, you know, just everything good happens to them. You look at your life and go, God's not even trying in my house, man. It's just, do you ever feel that? Like, why does life look so good for everyone else? And why is it so hard for us? Maybe you saw me sitting down and holding the mic for Jeannie. That was just because I don't want any other guy sitting that close to my wife. But I know some of you women are going to jab your husband on the drive. Would you have done that for me? I don't know. You just sat there and watched me struggle. I don't know. And you look at other people and you think, you know, God... I will worship you as God when you start acting like God in my life. I mean, why should I worship a God who doesn't seem to look at me? And at some point, we begin to mistrust God. We begin to doubt God. We begin to wonder, are you really who you say you are? And as we give in to that, something happens profoundly in that relationship. The minute you forget who a person is to you, that relationship is completely unstable. You know, it's one of my joys to see our kids as they grow up becoming truly friends with their parents. My kids are becoming my friends. And I enjoy that side of it. But once in a while, it's like, hey, hey, hey! I'm your friend, but I'm not just your friend. Better remember who I am to you. If you enjoy eating and breathing and things like that. You, you better not lose sight of because the friendship is predicated on the right posture. I can be friends with them because they acknowledge I'm their father. But if they start treating me like I'm just some dude, we ain't going to be friends anymore because it's bad for them and it's bad for me for that relationship to be so out of whack. So the first step of repentance is to get right this relational posture towards God because that's the first thing that goes awry. Do you get that? God stops being who he needs to be in our lives. He becomes something we make him to be and we dismiss a God out of our lives, who we've invented. Not the real God, but the God we've decided, this is what you're like, God. Never mind the truth. This is who I decided you are, and I'm going to kick this God out of my life. And the first step of repentance is to recognize the real God and get that right posture relative to him. And then he gives a second thing, which it kind of blows your mind that Christians have to be reminded of such a thing. (laughs) Right? It's like if I had to say to my wife every day, please resist other men. Can you imagine every day on the way to work, bye, honey, I love you, please resist other men. Thank you. And then I I go home. Can can you imagine if I had to do that every day, what that would do to me after a while? I'm like, this is so messed up. And yet we find that the writers of Scripture have to remind God's people, hey, you might want to resist the devil. And it's sad that we get this backwards so much of the time. We resist God and submit to the devil. We make the devil's job so easy. Come on, seduce me. Just one more word. I'm almost yours. But God's like, well, God, you got to jump to this hoop. You better make me respect you. You got to earn my love, God. How should I worship you when my life is like this? And we make God jump through all these hoops. 
It's, it's like the wife who laughs at every other man's joke, but her own husband's, oh, you're not funny, okay? And it's like, why is it so hard for the man you're supposed to love to get something out of you, but everybody else gets it right away? And I think that's the way God feels about his bride. Look at you. You make me work so hard for your affection, but the enemy gets it right away. Oh, devil, come on now. You know, just, it's so easy for him. It's so hard for me. Can you imagine the bridegroom in heaven feeling that all the time about his people? How frustrating, how heartbreaking that's got to be. So that his messengers have to say to his own bride, hey, would you please resist the devil? That word resist, if you could parse it out, really paints the picture of hand-to-hand combat. Like old school, naked Roman, Greco-Roman wrestling, you know, like in the Olympics, when the Olympics started. That kind of, right up there, you're in the, and you're contending and struggling. And what it paints a picture of is actively resisting someone who isn't going to leave you alone. So we get this idea that if I just ignore the devil, he's just going to go away. You cannot just ignore him. He's going to be in your face all the time. Now, I find it interesting that what James says is resist the devil, not resist sin, resist temptation. He doesn't even bother wasting his breath saying resist temptation because I think those are wasted words in a way. Look, the reason we sin, the reason we're tempted is because of desires that sit very deep in who we are. And too often I was taught growing up, hey, as you become a better Christian, you know, you got to stop liking that stuff. And so I would tell myself, I don't like these things. I don't care about that music. I don't like it. Ew, it's Satan music, you know. And I would, I would pretend I don't like secular music. I would pretend I didn't like Lamborghinis. I pretended I didn't want to look at beautiful women or have lots of money or enjoy a, a long, long, uh, you know, sleep in and miss class. I pretended I didn't like any of those things. Just like when I'm trying to lose some weight, I pretend I don't like sugary delights. It's just a lie. I will always like those things. That's the problem. I will always like those things. Those desires live inside of me. And by God's grace, they may fade a little over time, but they're real. And, and I think temptations are out there, whether Satan's at work or not, because the things that I'm tempted by are not like just wicked. I'm, not, I'm rarely tempted to kill somebody once in a while. But Rarely I'm like, I would really love to murder that person. Gosh, if, I, if it was just acceptable morally. I'm not, I'm not tempted by like, you know, really bad drugs. And, but I'm, I'm tempted by things that are just out there, like a Tesla Model S just driving by on the road. Somebody's car, minding his own business, obeying the law. And I look at that good citizen's possessions, and my heart is gripped. I want it. I just want that thing. Do you get that feeling? Temptations are just normal things which meet my heart and messes me up. See, the problem is that I have these desires and a world full of things dangled in front of me. And then here's where this, this, the devil comes into play. He couples all of that, these things in the world and the desires in my heart, and he begins to tell me lies about that relationship. 
Jesus teaches us in John 8, 44, that when the devil lies, he's speaking his native language. Some of you right now in this room, you know, English is not your native language, maybe Korean or Spanish, some other language. So when you're talking to somebody and you're trying to do it in English, you're like, ah, I can't express myself. But when you use your native language, oh, there it is. That's that feels natural. I'm not even thinking the words are just look at that. That's a native language. And when the devil lies, it's like that for him. He doesn't even know he's lying because he doesn't know what the truth is. Everything he says is wrong. Everything he says is a lie. And that's the way the devil works against us. He doesn't dangle things. He doesn't need to. The world you live in is full of that stuff. It's just full of it. I can't make all the nice cars in Chicago land go away. If I could, my life would be easier. But I can't. I can't put a monk's robe on all the beautiful women and make them wear burqas. I think the Muslims are onto something. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can't do that. So the world I live in is full of everything that my heart wants. Here's the problem. I know when I'm sitting in front of God that so many of the things I want will destroy so many of the things I value. I know that. I know that there's one woman I'm called to love and I truly do love her with every fiber of my being. I would lay down my life for her in a second and not regret it ever. I know that. But I forget it too easily when somebody is whispering a really good lie in my ear. And you've met people like this who are like the devil and that when they start talking, you're like, I would buy anything from this person. I once bought a timeshare and almost lost my marriage. We went into this thing and she's like, you're not going to buy a timeshare. You're not going to buy it. And this dude was just so, I was like, we got to get a timeshare. We, <laughs> we bought it and sold it at a loss and I was a donkey's rear for a very long time in my marriage. That's how Satan works. He just gets right along and says, you go, yeah, you know what? Man, nobody ever gives you any respect. You should go and get some for yourself. Go and do that thing for you. They're not going to give it to you at home. You go and get yours, okay? And it's so soothing to hear those things because that's an an amplification of the little voice that's talking to you all day long from your own heart, isn't it? No one's respecting you. Nobody's making you happy. You deserve better than what you got. You are this and you are that. And you just want it. You want, we believe the lies because we want to believe the lies. Do you understand that? It's not just because the devil is such a good liar, but because we want so badly for the lies to be true. But when you really sit in front of God, The lies lose their power. And we learn something from the way that Jesus combated temptation. Do you remember that when he was in the wilderness? And Satan came after him. And here's how he did. He goes, he appealed to Jesus' pride. Oh, if you're such a baller, why don't you do this? And, you know, as as a man, Jesus is still human. I'd be like, all right, man, I'll show you. If I could dunk a ball and someone was like, you can't dunk a ball, I would watch out. I would dunk it with flair just to show him. But Jesus was like, no. You're appealing to something that needs to be suppressed in my life. Satan then outright just distorted scripture. He told a lie about what the Bible said. And then he made a promise he had no ability to fulfill. He made a promise that in a million years he could not keep. And in all, the, all those times, how did Jesus resist the devil? Do you remember? He used God's word. He did not fight the devil with 
you, your kung fu will not work on me. You know, it's not like he's just coming up against the devil with willpower going, no way will I give into that. You will lose doing that. You cannot arm wrestle the devil and win. I've tried. I've lost over and over and over. Have you? Raise your hand if you beat the devil in every arm. Just, I kicked his butt. I tattooed his butt right on my... Raise your hand if you've beaten him every time you've gone head to head. Yeah, I didn't think so. You can't beat him head to head like that. He's not afraid of you. He's not intimidated by you. You'd be like, I will. And he's like, ooh. You who did that a million times before, you're going to stand up to me this time? Ooh. But you just start hiding behind the truth of God's word. He loses his power. It says in Matthew 4.11, after all that, the devil left him. And that's what James is saying here. Submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. Why does the devil flee when we actively resist him, especially with the power of God's truth? Because the devil knows that the only thing that will conquer his lies is the truth of God's word. I have experienced this so many times I cannot even count. Someone will call me in great distress, and I understand it. They're, not, they're in real distress because a lie has crept in, and they have believed it, and now they're, they're, look at their own lives as so abhorrent and wretched, and they just want to be done with everything. They want to flush the toilet, reset everything. And then the word of God starts to come out, and it's true, and their hearts and their souls, they know it. And as the word of God begins to do battle with those lies, the lies start to lose their power. It doesn't hold forever. It's good for a day, a week, a month, and we will need that truth again. But the only way to make the devil flee is to tell the truth. You cannot fight lies with lies, and you cannot fight lies with willpower. So to resist the devil and to make him flee is to actively resist the lies with the truth of God's word. I've seen people lose the battle to sin over and over because they rehearse a false and dishonest narrative. They say things about themselves that are not true, but they just keep saying it. In the same way that some people go, oh yeah, you know, coffee doesn't affect me. It does, I can sleep fine with coffee. No, you can't. You're not an alien. You don't have some superhero metabolism that gets rid of caffeine's power. Maybe once in a while you do fall asleep after you drink coffee, but you're still affected by it. It's probably why your sleep cycle is such a mess. I know that's true of me. I've said those same lies. We rehearse this narrative and make it true even though it's not. You cannot win doing that. The only way to resist the devil is to tell the truth. And then James says a very interesting thing. He says, come near to God. Now, I listened to a a number of sermons and uh, I've read a number of, of essays and articles about this text. And when it comes to this verse... It seems unanimous that all the old school preachers that I like to read have one perspective on this verse, and that is, you have to come near to God. You've been so far, you better get near. Start reading the Bible more, pray more, go to church more often, come near to God. And it's like this command in your face, come near to God. And yes, there's some truth to that. There is some truth to that. You do have to do a lot of the things you did at first when you were in love with him. But I think they're really missing the point of these words. Because look at what the whole thing says. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Here's the point of all of this. When we return to God after spiritual adultery, we don't return to him as escaped convicts or runaway slaves or deserting soldiers. We don't come back to him tail tucked between our legs saying, I have no right to stand in front of you. No, if the parable of the prodigal son taught us anything, what it taught us is when we return to God, no matter how far we've wandered, we always return to him as sons and daughters. Always. We don't have to grovel outside the gates waiting for a crack in the door to rush in. In fact, if you remember the parable of the prodigal son, that's exactly what this lost son was planning. His whole way home, carrying his knapsack on a stick, you know, he's just walking home going, okay, when I get there, I'm going to be like, Dad, I was an idiot. I squandered your inheritance on prostitutes and wild living. I'm an idiot. I'm so sorry. I know I really lost my chance to be your son, but can I at least have a job at your house? I got to eat. That was his whole rehearsed spiel. Why was he thinking that? Because this lost son, even on his way home, still had no idea what his dad was like. He had no idea. And that's the way we are too. When we drift far away, and maybe at the retreat, in that slow pace, in that silent space, maybe what you learned was, my goodness, what I thought of my faith was an echo from high school or college days. It's been a long time since I've been really close to God. I have drifted, and I didn't realize how much I drifted till I sat still and really looked at it. Maybe that was your experience. And maybe as you realize how far you've walked away from God, part of the instinct is, I can't just rush back. It's got to be a slow reentry. And many of us who are in relationships learn that from our own human experience. When you get your partner mad, how easy is it to get back in their good graces? Have you ever had this experience? Um, either a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a spouse, and you've really screwed up, and you got them all upset, and they're huffing and puffing, and they're riding that high horse for like a good two weeks, and then you walk up to them, and you just kind of go, and you put your hand on them, they're like, <laughs> they Bat your hand away. And you're trying to create a connection, a, an intimacy, restoring the relationship. And the person goes, whatever. You think it's that easy? What they're saying is, this heart is Fort Knox. You haven't earned the right to crawl back in here yet. And I get that because that's exactly my heart. I know that's your heart too. We don't forgive very easily. We don't restore people very easily. And we assume that maybe our God is just like us. I don't know why we think that all the time. Thank God he's not anything like us. But we think he's like us, and we assume if I've drifted from God and been unfaithful to God, the road back is a very long roundabout journey where I will do years of penance and groveling and rubbing my hands together and saying I'm sorry, proving to him over and over through large offering checks and volunteering at seeds and I don't know what else you could think. Go to Tuba City. I mean, you just this frenzy of religious activity to show God I'm back. I swear, this time for real, I'm back. Just like the husband who screws up, the next day he's like washing dishes and he's repairing the siding. He's going, what? I I woke up at four in the morning to do this because I felt like it. You're trying so hard to get back in because you believe in your life. No relationship once broken is easy to restore. It's just not true with God. 
The son was shocked to see his dad running towards him, not with a club in his hand, but with open arms. At first, I'd be like, has he got a stick? What is the, what's he doing? But he's coming with open arms. And then right away, he goes, hey, everybody, my son's back. Let's party. He puts the ring on and the robe on to tell him, you didn't come back as a second-class restored citizen. You're my son again. Right at this moment, because that's all I wanted all along. I will say this. The most common mistake we will make about God for the rest of our lives is underestimating the openness of his heart towards us. The most common mistake you and I will make over the course of our earthly lives is to underestimate how merciful, how gracious, how forgiving, and how soft the heart of God the Father is towards us. And if you find that you have drifted far from God and now you're just sitting outside the fence, groveling, thinking he won't want me back, nothing could be further from the truth. When James says, come near to God and he will come near to you, what he's saying is you are encouraged, invited, rushed back because you will find welcome when you come home to God. He will not rub it in your face. He doesn't want to rehearse all those wasted years. They are lost anyway. What he wants is you right back as his son or his daughter. And that is what is waiting for you if you drift from God and have the courage to come home. I'll give you another thing here. He says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. We've got to be careful about that because nothing we do can really just make us clean. Okay, we have to acknowledge in saying this that James also acknowledges only the blood of Jesus makes us truly clean. Okay, I don't believe what he's saying is if you do the right things, you can scrub your own hands and you can purify your own heart. That would go against everything else scripture teaches us. So what is he really saying? I think part of what he's saying is this. When we wander to a faraway place, we bring certain things home with us. When we went to Bolivia, David and I brought a little souvenir home in our intestinal tracts that reminded us for two weeks that we hadn't come home alone. If you're slow, we got a parasite, okay? Very sick. Lots of unpleasant biological things happening to us. I think that's the way it is whenever we wander. We go to some very dark places when we're far from God. We see some things. We do some things that horrify us if we really sit long enough, still enough, to think about what we're capable of when we're far from God. Some of you learned that this week. God met you at the retreat already by Tuesday. You had blown it, hadn't you? I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm saying just based on all my experience living as a Christian, it's probably the case that for some of us in our church, off the high of the retreat and the place God brought us to, it didn't take more than two days for us to crash and burn and return like a dog to its vomit and be right back at that place where we hated being. We go to some pretty dark places, some pretty dirty places, places we're not proud of when we're far from God. And when you come back from those places, you carry some things back with you. I call them the souvenirs of sin. I don't know if that's the best 
term for it, but you don't come back from a faraway place empty-handed. You come with certain things stuck to you in your hands. And so I think what James is saying is before you really restore this thing with God, come home, you got to leave some things at the front gate. you got to wash your hands in the sink of repentance. I've told you a number of times about stories about men I've met when I'm traveling to preach because no one at our church, of course, struggles with pornography on their computer. Um, but men in other churches do. I am joking, clearly. Don't get all proud. You guys all struggle with it. But, you know... <laughs> The truth is, a lot of people struggle, and they get to a point of conviction where I see with tears in their eyes, I am so done with this, it is destroying me, I don't want it anymore, and I simply give them the advice Jesus gave. Do you remember this? Hey, dude, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. You can't be like, I'll just kind of half look, or I'll close it all the time. You can't trust it. What Jesus says is when you realize something is being, is being used like a hook in your heart to pull you away from God, your Father, the only response is a dramatic, drastic, decisive act of expelling that thing from your life. Because if you bring it into the house with you and you hold that souvenir of sin in your hand, it's only a matter of time before you will grow to love that thing again with the love that you owe to God. That's just the way it is. What washes down the drain at the sink of repentance might be very costly. Do you remember in Acts 19, there was a story of a great revival and some people came to faith in Ephesus. And what it records in Acts 19 is that a number of the people who used to practice sorcery had all these very, very expensive scrolls of magical incantations that were very, very expensive. And when they met Christ, they said, this is a mark of our old life, a souvenir of sin, and it has no place in this new life. We can't in any way reconcile these artifacts with the new life we've been invited into. And so as a symbolic gesture, they all gathered at a bonfire and threw their scrolls into it. And it's interesting, I think, because... Because Luke is a physician and he's very attentive to detail, he's probably like, hey, somebody, let's ballpark. What's the value monetarily of these scrolls? And it actually says right there in Acts 19.19, the estimated value of all those scrolls was 50,000 drachmas. What's a drachma? (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's a coin. But it's one day's wage for an average worker in the realm. Okay? So if you extrapolate to today's money, That's about a $10 million bonfire. Now, the point is not that it was expensive, but that when you're holding something worth 10,000 bucks, a book, a first edition, first print running of black magic spells and, you know, things like that, and you're holding it, and it used to be your prize, your treasure, and you're standing right there and ready to throw it into the fire, I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't matter who you are, that is not an easy thing to do. That final act of throwing it in, it will set you free in some important ways. But it is so hard to do. Because like it or not, no matter what's happened between us and the Lord, those objects still hold great power over our hearts. When I was a young man, I got convicted at church. I remember coming home and finding that JCPenney catalog with a well-worn women's underwear section that stumbled me throughout my childhood. How's that for real? 
Okay? <laughs> You're like, our pastor what? That's, that's what it was. In those days, we didn't have the internet. We had JCPenney catalogs. And, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And I just remember having it by the garbage can going, I can't have this anymore. It was a stupid catalog. But I'm, I'm like, it's my, my precious. I can't. We've had so many days together just me looking at it. And, and as I threw it in, it was like a weight had fallen off my shoulders. But I can't describe to you as a young boy how hard that was. I'm ashamed to even talk about it right now. It's just like, oh, it's a catalog. I'm standing over the garbage can going, I don't know if I can do this. I know I must, but the power of these things. Anybody who's ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend you had no business being with and you're about to break up, is it easy? Are you like, well, you know, I should know better. Uh, we have to break up. Thank God that's over. Now let's go eat. Yeah, right. You'd be crying and not eating, lose 30 pounds just because you, you're so depressed. It's just hard to let go of these things and these people which represent the thing that hooked your heart. But the reason for the decisive action is this. Criminal investigators tell us the components of any crime are what? Means, opportunity, and motive. Right? Do we all watch enough cop shows to know that? There's almost nothing you can do about means and opportunity. Because the means are everywhere and the opportunities keep popping up. I'm sorry, the other way around. The, the motive, it's always in you. The only thing you can control are the means and the opportunity. Isn't that right? So, the, so this is the way it works. We can't control the murderer's spirit in people's hearts, so we have to control the availability of firearms. That's just the way the logic works. You can't control the brokenness inside but you can control the opportunity and the means outside. I think that's in large part what James is getting at when he says, wash your hands, drop the things right there on the floor that have hooked you and drawn you away from your father, your lover in heaven. And as you let go of those things, when your, hand, when your eye habitually looks at your hand, the object of its wrong love is no longer available. It's gone. It's banished. And little by little, because you have eliminated opportunity and you have diminished means, the motive begins to come under control. Do you get that? I wonder if some of us have had moments with God where we really understand he wants us to make a change, but because we didn't let go of something, that thing in our hands came back to haunt us. Let me give you, oh, I switched this slide by dropping it. Look at that. Let me give you the last thing. Simply this. Grieve, mourn, and wail. I think it's the last thing, and it's right that it's the last thing. I think what he's saying is this. And some Christians, they interpret this verse wrong way. They say, any godly person will never laugh or smile because I, like a good Christian, have changed my laughter into mourning. You people are just not serious enough for the Lord. Did you ever meet a Christian like that? The Lord wants us to be serious people. That's almost every Korean pastor I've ever met. Okay? I, just the truth. I, they catch themselves laughing. They go, oh, I don't know what happened to me. I'm so sorry. I showed some joy. You know, it's the wrong way to apply this verse is to pretend that like joy has no place in the Christian life. 
And I, that was probably sinful of me to throw in all those good men. <laughs> but you know what I mean? We, there's whole cultures that are wired this way. You're not allowed to laugh. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying this. Before you just go through all these steps and just move forward with your relationship with God, there has to be a point at which you pause, sit still long enough to get the full weight of what you just did. I think we're so desperate to get our act together and move on with our lives that we really speed track, we fast track the process of restoration. Some dysfunctional marriages go through this like every other day. A terrible fight and then you just kind of go to your own corners, ignore each other for like a week or two. And then after two weeks, magically like, whatever, all right, let's just go see a movie or go out to eat. And then at the, the food is so good, you're like, oh, this is so good. The relationship still sinks, but the food is so good, it makes you forget. And then you're like, I think we're back. We're okay now. And I know it because I'll talk to the couple. I'm like, is everything okay? Yeah, we went out yesterday. We have fun. Everything's okay. No, it's not okay. It's not even close to okay. It's just not violent. It's just not fresh, but it's not okay. And I think part of the reason is when you're angry at each other, you say some wicked, venomous things. Stuff that if you set it to a painted item, the paint would peel off, okay? That bad. Things that you wouldn't say to an enemy, you say to your lover when you're upset, don't you? This is human nature. And then we just move on. We have one dinner, one vacation. We're like, everything's back to normal. We're great. We had a wonderful time out. But you never really pause and thought about the things you said to each other, the things you did to each other, just how deep that damage runs and how much grief there really should be felt in your heart over what you did to somebody that you love. And because we never get that satisfaction, that justice, that the other person acknowledged just how awful things got, how deeply they wounded us, we just forget, we turn up the music and we move on. And we do that even with God. Thank God that season's over. We're back. Me and God are good. I'm, I'm doing this and I'm volunteering there and we're okay now. I'm reading the Bible again, I'm praying, but you never really grieved over the fact that you wandered from the one who saved you. So when this new scene gets old again, where will your heart take you? I think to grieve over our sin is to fully understand the horror of betrayal and train our hearts to know we never want to go back there again. That was more than I ever want to endure. Here's why I so love the retreat we just had. Because I don't believe we can grieve and mourn and wail properly until we finally shut up and sit still. Just be still. And have a really reflective period where we consider how far we went and how graciously we were invited back and exactly what we did to the one who has only ever loved us and made a way for us. I'd want to know that if me or Jeannie, if we ever were unfaithful to the other and we reconciled, that we wouldn't just patch things up and move forward. But there would be a true moment of recognition that what we did to the other was horrible and heartbreaking, shattering of the person inside. And I think it's important that in the process of coming back to God, we sit still and reflect and consider so that real healthy grief settles over our hearts about what it is to be far from God.
I want to invite you to bow with me and as the praise team comes back up. One of the great things we learned at the retreat was the power of an extended period of silence. We also learned that two minutes feels like two years when you're not used to it. So what I like to do is I like to give us three minutes here just to sit still and quiet before God and let him speak and for us to listen to him and to our own hearts. And then if you feel led to say something back to the Lord in your own voice, go ahead and do that. And let's just spend some time quietly reflecting and praying. And then the praise team will bring us into a time of closing songs. Okay, so let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.